Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies. I'm Louise Muscetta, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Patrick Scanlan about his new book, Freedom's Debtors, British Anti-Slavery in Sierra Leone in the Age of Revolution. Patrick Scanlan, welcome to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies. I'm Louise Muscetta, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Patrick Scanlan about his new book, Freedom's Debtors, British Anti-Slavery in Sierra Leone in the Age of Revolution. Patrick Scanlan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. No, No problem. Patrick, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Well, I was born in, in, in Montreal, in Canada, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Um, I did a BA at McGill, so a sort of hometown university, and then I, I did my PhD at, at Princeton. I finished that in, in late 2013. Um, so I spent a couple of years as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Student Economics at Harvard, uh, and now I'm assistant professor in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Mm, right. And and what what attracted you to the topic of anti-slavery in Sierra Leone? I mean, I've, I've always been interested, I think, in the 1790s, in, in British history in particular, um, but I guess more broadly, a kind of global moment in the 1790s, this, this uh, moment of profound transformation in, in political and economic and, and cultural history. Uh, and so I always... I came into the PhD program thinking that I would do some kind of project related to the transformations in British society in that period. So I hopped from uh, initially a project about the London Corresponding Society, so one of the most prominent radical, I guess you could call it an an, an advocacy group at work at the time, uh, to a kind of political biography of Hannah Moore, um, the Tory, I, I guess the the Tory radical, I think it's the best way to describe her, but also in many ways, a kind of radical, uh, radical feminist for her time. Uh, and then eventually on to anti-slavery. Um, and so the project didn't really begin with Sierra Leone as much as it began with looking at the incredibly tangled and complicated history of where British anti-slavery came from uh, and the deep connections between uh, what seems like, you know, on, on the face of it, a sort of, progressive reform, you know, the end of slavery in the British Empire, but was in fact, mm. in many ways, connected to um, a profoundly, um, a kind of profoundly reactionary uh, current in British intellectual and cultural life at the time. So the project came from the 1790s, and it, it, it began as a British history, uh, but then as I started to work on it, uh, I saw an imperial dimension to it. And I think in the end, I thought um, as I was writing the dissertation that eventually became the book, it would be 
important as a kind of counterpoint to see what happened uh, in the empire after the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. But as the project developed, it became more and more about uh, less and less a kind of point counterpoint and more straightforwardly a history of the implementation of, of laws against the slave trade. Um, so I think, I think in, in the end, what, what started as a really domestic history ended up being um, geographically, at least very much an imperial history. Mm. And um, I mean, I mean, your title, let's it, talk a little bit about your title, Freedom's Debtors. So who, who are those indebted to freedom? And, and, and what does it mean to be indebted to freedom? So the central argument of, of the book um, is that in order to understand British anti-slavery in any kind of complete or significant or meaningful way, you need to understand what British anti-slavery did when it was put into force. And one of the main things that the abolition of the British slave trade in 1807 did uh, in terms of actual consequences for British policy or for people within the British Empire was uh, to act as the, 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 the sort of opening for a campaign of interdiction against slave ships off the coast of West Africa. Um, and for a significant portion of the time in which Britain prosecuted its campaign against the slave trade, many of the people, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's the baby in the background. Uh, many of the people uh, released by British cruisers from slave ships were repatriated in Britain's, at the time, tiny kind of backwater colony of Sierra Leone. And so the people mm. who are indebted to freedom are the people who were initially known as, uh, in, in British law, as captured Negroes, and then later as liberated Africans or as recaptives. So they, in, in, in the course of the 19th century, more than 80,000 people who were released from the, Brit from the slave trade by British ships and then repatriated in Sierra Leone. Um, and the entire campaign against the slave trade and the entire premise of British anti-slavery was the expansion of freedom in the British empire. So Britain was an empire of liberty, uh, it was an empire, the first European empire, the first significant European empire to voluntarily give up its own slave trade. Um, it had, in a sense, made a sort of sacrifice of a portion of its economy for the sake of, of, of human liberty. Uh, and so the question that was being worked out in practice in Sierra Leone was, well, what did it actually cost to increase the liberty of people released from the slave trade. What did those people owe to the British Empire in exchange for the sacrifice that Britain thought it had made? And so mm. in practice, what happened uh, was something that looked, I mean, look, it, it, it wasn't chattel slavery, but that was um, a, a kind of regime of coerced labor uh, and of very intrusive um, social engineering that was built up uh, that was built up as a kind of system for making the end of the slave trade worthwhile for Britain and to prove that what Britain had done had been worth it. Uh, and so freedom's debtors are the people released from the slave trade in Sierra Leone who found themselves, you know, taken from the decks of slave ships or the, the, the holds of slave ships to this complicated, uh, ragged and... Um, I think, very important system of, of, of labor and, and missionary work in Sierra Leone. Mm. 
And and you referred throughout your book to abolitionism as something quite distinct from abolition. Could, what, what do you understand abolitionism to be? So partly that's a way of thinking about... So I, I think it's worth making two distinctions. Um, the first, and this is something that I've learned as I've, um, you know, I think readers of the book will see that I've borrowed a lot and thought a lot about the history of anti-slavery and of abolitionism in the Atlantic world more broadly. Mm. Uh, and I think readers will see that there's a lot of influence from American and African-American histories of emancipation in the way that I think about what freedom means and what the sequels to freedom uh, in, in most of the Atlantic world uh, ended up being. Um, so it's important to distinguish, I think, first, British abolitionism from American abolitionism. Um, because British abolitionism was always a kind of much more imperial, much more um, conservative, and much more uh, gradual version of, of, of abolitionism than what eventually emerged, you know, in the in the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s in the United States, a kind of radical version of emancipation, where the consequences of emancipation are not only freedom for enslaved people, but also full political rights for African American, or at least, or for at least for African American men after emancipation. So it's important to distinguish that, and it's important to note that in the British Empire, the end of slavery basically never means the beginning of political rights and never really means the beginning of economic rights. The end of slavery is seen, uh, whether it's in West Africa or in the West Indies in the 1830s, as the first step on a potentially, you know, indefinite road towards civilization. So that's that's the first mm -hmm. distinction um, that's important to make. And the second is between abolitionism and abolition. Uh, and in a way, that's kind of a sort of kind of cute sleight of hand to distinguish between domestic and imperial histories of freedom in the British Empire, because there's a really long and very rich political history, I think, of how abolitionism in Britain uh, came to be. So how Britons who were sort of gung-ho slave traders circa 1700 came to think that the slave trade was not only uh, morally wrong, but something that ought to be abolished by 1807. Uh, and that's a really profound sea change in British cultural and political life. Uh, but it really doesn't have much bearing on enslaved people. So there were no, effectively no enslaved people in Britain in the 18th century. Um, that isn't to say that enslaved people never entered into Britain. Uh, but for the most part, most people in Britain would not have seen, unless they traveled to the West Indies, would not have seen an enslaved person in, in, in the British Isles. And mm. so in many ways, abolitionism was a kind of abstract debate uh, within British society about what it meant to be British, what freedom meant within the British Empire, and what slavery meant to British political economy. Uh, and that's very different from the actual process of abolition. Um, you don't have, you know, when, when, when it comes to debating the merits of uh, ending the slave trade, you know, you have uh, Edmund Burke, you have William Wilberforce, you have all these sort of towering orators of parliament uh, discussing the intricacies of British freedom. 
But when it comes to actually doing the abolition of the slave trade, once the, the decision had been taken, you have a very different cast of characters. Uh, you have sort of, you have in many ways, the sort of least of the British military sent to enforce a law that many people in Britain proper didn't really understand. So that's the distinction I want to make between the, between the abstractions and the complexity of the politics of ending the slave mm-hmm. trade as a political act and the actual doing of the abolition of the slave trade. Um, And so my book, I think, is about abolition rather than about abolitionism, uh, Mm -hmm. although it does necessarily redound back on what we ought to think as historians about Mm -hmm. abolitionism, having seen what it actually meant in practice. Mm -hmm. Now, the Sierra Leone, the the colonial history of Sierra Leone begins... um, very much with the anti-slavery movement with Wilberforce, right? So um, can you explain a little bit um, the, 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 the short period um, when Sierra Leone was a private, com- a private colony settled by, by these black loyalists from the American War of Independence? And, but, and, and what was the aim of this private colony? So Sierra Leone began um, at, at least, so Sierra Leone as a as a European as as part of a European empire, you know, passed from the Portuguese to the Spanish, and that was eventually sort of a kind of abandoned trading post um, on the coast of West Africa. Um, and in 1787, so right after the American War of Independence, um, the prominent, quite eccentric. British anti-slavery activist, Granville Sharp, um, in, in many ways, one of the pillars of the history of abolitionism, because he was a, a lawyer and a, a kind of polymath political philosopher and, and political projector, uh, devised a colony, which he called the province of freedom, uh, which would be a place to experiment with. And, and this is something that isn't covered in the book, maybe as, as much as I'd like, although it has been covered by, by other historians. Um, Granville Sharp devised a colony that was based on old English principles of democratic governance. So he devised a a constitution, a written constitution uh, that would divide colonists in the province of freedom into hundredors and tithingmen. So he reached back into this uh, kind of Anglo-Saxon idea of a a, a, a sort of neighborhood level democracy to to create this government. Uh, And the people who ended up being recruited to colonize the province of freedom, which was to be set up at Sierra Leone, uh, were people who were known as the black poor. So these were um, indigent soldiers and sailors who had been left homeless and penniless by the end of the American War of Independence. Um, And so that colony was founded in in 1787 and collapsed fairly quickly. uh, And many of the colonists fled uh, either some made their way back to England, but most sort of settled in other uh, trading posts, often slave trading posts along the West African coast. Uh, and then in, set, in the 1790s, the Sierra Leone Company was formed. Um, and the Sierra Leone Company was a joint stock company whose directors included many of the most prominent figures within elite British anti-slavery. So William Wilberforce was, was a director. Uh, Henry Thornton was a director. Um, many of the sort of leading lights of 
evangelicalism and I guess you could call it progressive evangelicalism in British uh, in, in Britain at the time were, were directors of the Sierra Leone company uh, and the company planned to resettle uh, this trading post that Granville Sharp had attempted to settle in 1787 as a kind of pilot plant for um, free labor. So it would end up being a, a, a trading post where um, goods from West Africa that were not enslaved people would be sold by British merchants uh, and where eventually um, the, the company directors imagined um, African-American settlers from the British Empire could be sent to grow the kinds of crops uh, that were grown so profitably by enslaved laborers in the Caribbean on the coast of West Africa. So rather than having enslaved workers growing sugar in Barbados or Jamaica, you could have free British African American or free British subjects of African American descent growing sugar on the coast of West Africa. Uh, and so in 1792, um, about 1500 former uh, some free African-Americans, some formerly enslaved people who had been resettled after the American War of Independence in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick um, chose to go to Sierra Leone as colonists. Um, and so from 1792 until 1808, uh, the Sierra Leone Company were the nominal uh, owners of the colony of Sierra Leone, and it was run as a kind of economic pilot plant. Uh, it wasn't particularly mm -hmm. successful or particularly profitable, um, which had bearing on on its on its later colonial history. But that was that was the idea. Uh, Sierra Leone was initially founded to make money through free labor uh, and to prove in a kind of limited geographically limited space, the possibility of growing the kinds of things that enslaved people grew, uh, but having them be grown by by um, wage laborers instead of enslaved laborers. Mm -hmm. And how did Sierra Leone in 1808 become a crown colony? So, um, so the colony, as, as I've said, uh, I mean, one of the, one of the big questions for the Sierra Leone company, one of the great what ifs from the perspective of the company directors was, well, what if Sierra Leone, uh, had not been, inadvertently drawn into the Napoleonic and revolution, the, the, the revolutionary Napoleonic wars. Um, so in 1794, so just two years after the company, um, just two years after the company had founded its colony with its new capital of Freetown, uh, which is still the capital of, 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 of independent Sierra Leone now, um, two years after the founding of Freetown, Freetown was sacked by French revolutionary sailors in 1794 uh, and the company lost an enormous amount of money. Um, so after that sacking of, of Freetown in 1794, the Sierra Leone company was hemorrhaging capital uh, and the company's directors who, as I, as I mentioned earlier, were almost uniformly well-connected within British government started to lobby for possibly turning over ownership of the colony to the crown. Um, so rather than, um, rather than, than uh, directly owning the colony and directly governing it, uh, the company hoped that they could get uh, the British crown to take over the colony as a possession, and then uh, they could maintain commercial ties there. So that started in 1794. Um, but 
the British government, the, the, the crown was not particularly interested in uh, taking possession of, 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 of Sierra Leone. Uh, and what ended up drawing, I argue, in Freedom's Debtors, uh, the company really into close association with the crown uh, was the arrival of the Maroons. Um, so the Jamaican Maroons uh, have their own incredibly complicated and interesting history, but the sort of thumbnail sketch um, is the, the Maroon community in Jamaica had lived independently of the plantation, of, of plantation power for centuries uh, in a, in a uh, uneasy truce, I guess you could call it, with, with plantation owners. So Maroons were guaranteed their freedom in exchange for uh, returning runaways from plantations back to slave owners in Jamaica. Uh, and in 1797, uh, the Maroons stopped effectively uh, returning runaways, uh, which led to the beginning of a war between the Maroons uh, and the Jamaican government. Uh, and eventually a group of Maroons, this is a really convoluted story, but it shows, I think, the, the interconnectedness of, of the British Atlantic world at this time. Eventually a group of mm. about 500 Maroons were just sent into exile as punishment for their involvement in the war against the Jamaican government. Uh, and they ended up, first of all, in Halifax, uh, one of the same places where many of the uh, African-American black loyalists had ended up uh, just a few years before. And eventually they ended up in Sierra Leone um, and the Sierra Leone company actively lobbied uh, both the Nova Scotia uh, governor, uh, lieutenant governor at the time, uh, and also the, the British central government for the, uh, to, to recruit the Maroons as colonists to Sierra Leone. And I argue in the book that they did that for two reasons. Um, the first was to uh, increase the, military involvement uh, in Sierra Leone in order to make Sierra Leone into not only a trading post, but also a military outpost of the British Empire. Uh, so the Maroons were considered to be both ferocious warriors in their own right, but also very dangerous. So they were themselves a military, considered to be a military fighting force, uh, but they were also believed to um, necessitate having a British garrison in a particular place. So if you had Maroons in your settlement, you needed troops there to protect other colonists from the possibility of Maroon raiding. Um, mm -hmm. And so having the Maroons as colonists allowed the, the Sierra Leone company to demand a garrison and then eventually a Royal Navy, uh, a, a, a Royal Navy, well, they, they wanted a squadron, but they got a single ship, um, but a Royal Navy presence in Sierra Leone and that increased connections um, sort of thickened the connections between the Sierra Leone company and the British government. Uh, and the second reason was that the, the Maroons themselves were considered to be in a way that the black loyalists were not a kind of genuinely imperial group of subjects. So the British government didn't care particularly about the fate of the black loyalists, particularly by the 1790s, but it did care about the Maroons because Jamaica loomed so much larger um, in the eyes of the colonial office than did Sierra Leone. And so those two things, I argue, eventually tipped the scales in favor of turning Sierra Leone over to, um, over to the crown. And that happened in 1808. Uh, and it happened 
you know, just days before the imperial law against the slave trade went into force. But as I try to mm. emphasize in the book, that was just a coincidence that had they been able to do so, the colony, the company would have been happy to turn over the colony to the crown as early as the 17, you know, the mid 1790s. So, 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 so the abolition of the Slave Trade Act, um, what, so this is a two-part question. What did it mean for the enslaved on their ships? So, so on these ships that were taking them um, at some along the, the middle passage um and 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 what did it mean in in practice for sierra leone in its early years um so for people making the middle passage in the first so in in, in 1807 1808 uh after the abolition of the slave trade came into force in the empire the first people um, who were released from slave ships were, I mean, it's important to note that Sierra Leone wasn't particularly close to where most shipping of enslaved people took place. So by the turn mm. of the 19th century, the vast majority of the slave trade was carried out, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles to the south of Sierra Leone, particularly in the great, the Bights of Benin, and Biafra, um, so sort of uh, just just above and just below the equator, um, uh, significantly, you know, quite quite far from Sierra Leone. So there was some slave trade that took place, some slave trading that took place uh, to the north of of the colony, and some to the south uh, in places like well, what's now uh, in, in what's now Senegal, um, uh, to the north of Sierra Leone, but most of the slave trade took place took place further south. So many of the enslaved people um, who were repatriated in Sierra Leone, it's not as though they were caught right off the coast and then returned. Uh, they had already probably mm. spent a significant amount of time on board a slave ship. And then when their ships were captured by British Navy cruisers at sea, uh, they would then spend a significant amount of time on board either, you know, rather, you know, still on board a slave ship en route to Sierra Leone instead of en route to the West Indies um, or on board a, a Royal Navy cruiser heading back to port. Um, and then when they arrived in Sierra Leone, uh, they would be. So at first, there's a sort of period, there's a period in, in, in the history of the colony when no one really knew exactly what to do with uh, enslaved people when they arrived. Uh, and so I point to that in the book as showing us something really important about what most people in the British Empire thought anti-slavery meant. So when people got to, mm. when enslaved people arrived in Freetown um, in 1807 or 1808, they were taken off of the ship uh, and brought to a part of the city uh, that had once, that became known as the slave yard uh, at the time, um, where they were effectively declared to be apprentices and their apprenticeships uh, were sold to colonists within the city. Um, and it wasn't clear exactly what the terms of the apprenticeships were. It wasn't clear when they would end. Um, it wasn't clear what colonists or British merchants could expect from apprentices uh, or formerly enslaved people. Um, and so at its very beginning, no one really knew what the end of the slave trade meant. 
the only thing that they really knew in Freetown was that it didn't mean that people released from slave ships were free to do whatever they liked. Um, many people actually, or at least there are anecdotes in the archive um, of former slaves arriving in Sierra Leone and realizing that they weren't particularly far from where they actually lived uh, and wanting to return back to their villages um, and not being allowed mm. to do so because, you know, they might have been lying or um, at, at, at any rate, they had been released from slavery by the British Empire. And so they owed something to the British Empire before they could return home. So it was really fuzzy at first. Um, but eventually... Mm -hmm the colony developed a much more sophisticated way of processing and of thinking about and of distributing the labor of um, former, former slaves. Hmm. And, and that's through the vice admiralty courts, yeah. right? So this is, so this is, this is a point. I, th I think this is one of the most, I think it's one of the more important points in the book. Um, so one of the most important figures in the history of abolitionism uh, of the judicial and legislative and theoretical crafting of, of British anti-slavery law uh, is a man named James Stephen, um, who is the first of a line of Stevens who serve in the colonial office uh, and eventually, you know, in the form of James Fitzjames Stephen uh, become sort of among the most important jurists in the British Empire. Uh, but James Stephen, the first one, James Stephen, the father, um, is uh, one of the architects of the 1807 Slave Trade Act. He's one of the authors of the bill. He writes the language. He's, he's probably the most prominent lawyer in the anti-slavery movement, or at least in the elite anti-slavery movement in Britain. Um, and so one of the central questions when it, it so Wilberforce had started to try to pass resolutions against the slave trade early in the 1790s. Um, and some of them passed and some of them failed. Uh, and after the beginning of the war with France, most of them failed. Um, but those were more symbolic than, um, more symbolic than, than practical motions against the slave trade. Uh, but when it became clear mm -hmm. by the turn of the 19th century, uh, and especially by 1804, 1805, that it would actually be legislatively possible to end the slave trade, um, a burning question for the abolitionist movement was how you would actually free people from slavery and what you would do with people freed from slave ships. So it's important to note that no one in the anti-slavery movement was thinking about the end of slavery at all. Um, at, you know, that which eventually happened in 1834 mm. with the Emancipation Act, although that also was followed by um, a explicitly gradual system uh, for, for, for teaching, I guess, the, the disciplines of freedom to formerly enslaved people. Uh, but no one, no one in the anti-slavery movement thought that the end of the slave trade meant the end of slavery. Um, the West Indies were just too important and too politically significant within the British Empire for that to be possible. Um, you couldn't regulate Jamaica in the same way that you could regulate trade um, 
from Britain. And the slave trade was an imperial trade. It wasn't a, a West Indian trade. It was based, based largely. Mm -hmm. um, so the question was, what do you do with enslaved people after you free them from slave ships? And one thing that the abolitionists were desperate to avoid was the, uh, was um, that enslaved people would be turned over uh, to West Indian planters, free or enslaved. Hmm. And so the question was, how do you keep people from ending up in the West Indies? Uh, and how do you process the, so that, 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 so there was sort of one, one legislative problem was how do you actually turn people over uh, from slavery to freedom without them ending up in the hands of West Indian slave owners? And the second question was, how do you actually get people to chase slave ships? Because in the midst of the Napoleonic mm -hmm. Wars, uh, there were a lot, first of all, the, the British um, Navy was under significant strain in the midst of the global war with France. And more importantly, the, the way that naval warfare worked, uh, particularly outside of really important zones of conflict. So if you have something like the Battle of the Saints, um, or the, the, the great kind of naval battles of ships of the line uh, belonging to Britain and belonging to France, fighting each other for control of a particular part of the ocean. Um, so that was one way of organizing naval warfare, these kind of massed battles of, of fleet against fleet. Uh, but most naval conflict was organized in the British Empire in a kind of tournament system. So ships were allowed to cruise looking for um, enemy and neutral vessels, and they could basically kill whatever they killed. They got to eat, to use a kind of uh, mm -hmm. a sort of crude metaphor for it. Um, so they hunted for prizes, uh, and that's that's. Um, so a, a ship would capture, say, uh, you know, if you were if you were cruising off the coast of Barbados, and you captured a French merchant ship, you could bring it back to Barbados, um, and an instrument called the vice admiralty court would really quickly auction off the ship, all of its stuff and give you a significant, you, the, the captain of the British ship, a significant chunk of the money. Um, and it just so happened that James Stephen had began his legal career as an advocate in the court of vice admiralty in Barbados. So he, re, he admired uh, and was impressed by the speed at which captured shipping could be turned into money, which would then encourage captains to keep trying to capture more and more shipping. And so Stephen, after the passage mm -hmm. of the 1807 Slave Trade Act, uh, pushed really, really hard for the creation of a new court of vice admiralty in Sierra Leone, which he felt, and most of the other abolitionist leaders, Wilberforce, Clarkson, uh, at, by this time Zachary Macaulay, agreed that if the court was in Sierra Leone, it would first of all, make sure that enslaved people from slave ships didn't end up in the West Indies because they would end up in the hands of the new crown colony, uh, which was still deeply connected to British anti-slavery. Uh, and at the same time, by turning slave ships into money, it would encourage Royal Navy captains who were cruising off West Africa to pursue slave ships rather than other kinds of shipping, which would accelerate the abolition of the slave trade. So the Vice Admiralty Court is an instrument that takes uh, that takes an, an idea that was developed in the course of a long 18th series of 18th century wars, largely between largely between Britain and France, 
um, and in many ways largely over the enormous riches of Caribbean shipping and transports it to West Africa and repurposes it for um, slave trade interdiction. So this is really, this mm -hmm. is really complicated. I, I'm, yeah. Yeah. And, and so how does, how did Sierra Leone as a colony and also probably the, the remnant of the Sierra Leone company back in London benefit from this judicial instrument, this particular a new judicial instrument right. that the Vice Admiralty Courts. So the key figure, I argue, in Freedom Stetters in the Vice Admiralty Court is a man named Zachary McCauley, um, who is, uh, I mean, deserves, has, has been, uh, I, I think there, there have been a number of biographies written of, of Macaulay, and I don't think, uh, I think there's space for more. Uh, because Zachary Macaulay, I think, is a is a fascinating and complicated figure. Um, Macaulay is a a Scots, um, um, is a Scot. Uh, originally begins his career uh, as a what's called a bookkeeper, uh, which is a very kind of banal term for a plantation manager uh, in the West mm -hmm. Indies. Um, and Macaulay claims that in the course of his time, or claim, Macaulay claimed that in the course of his time in the West Indies, uh, acting as the bookkeeper on um, a sugar plantation uh, in Jamaica, he had become disgusted by the institution of slavery and had a kind of religious conversion. Um, I'm not sure about that. Uh, in fact, it seems as though he had some kind of trouble with his employer and he ended up back in London where he happened to cross paths with the Babington family. Um, Thomas Babington, who was a close friend of William Wilberforce and one of the wealthiest of the, uh, not a significant theorist of anti-slavery, but a significant patron of anti-slavery, took um, Macaulay under his wing and Macaulay converted, be, be, became a kind of a fervent evangelical um, uh, and became part of this circle of British evangelicals that included Wilberforce and Clarkson and uh, Babington. And all of a sudden, Macaulay, who had been sort of one of thousands and thousands of middle class Scots who went to make their fortune in the wider British Empire, all of a sudden he was kind of at the center of power or at least of, of evangelical power in London. And he became eventually the governor of company of, of, of the company in, in Sierra Leone. Um, and so all of that is preamble to the rise of Zachary Macaulay as the single most important figure in early Freetown. Uh, although he left Freetown in 1799 and lived, you know, lived in London basically until he died. Um, Macaulay and Babington uh, which was the name of, of, of Macaulay's trading firm, became the most important merchant firm in, in Sierra Leone. Uh, and the instrument that made them powerful was the Vice Admiralty Court. Um, so every mm -hmm. time a ship arrived in Sierra Leone, um, it would arrive in the Vice Admiralty Court. Uh, and it sort of arriving in the Vice Admiralty Court makes it seem much grander than it actually was because the Vice Admiralty Court could sit basically anywhere. Um, and that's something that we need to think about, I think, thinking about British imperial jurisprudence more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, you think about the Vice Admiralty Court as being, 
you know, a, a, a kind of grand building in, in Freetown. But, you know, wherever the vice admiralty judge was, he could convene the vice admiralty court. So when ships arrived in Freetown, they were um, put into port. Um, any enslaved people on board were brought on shore. Uh, and then within a few years of 1807, a new colonial department called the Department of Captured Negroes, or the Captured Negro Department, um, had come into had come into existence. Uh, and the officials of the Captured Negro Department would take a census of any enslaved people on board and in a mm -hmm. sense officially declare them to be free, but uh, they were kept in Freetown for the duration of uh, the judicial proceedings against the ship on which they had, or, uh, on, on which they had been imprisoned. Um, and so the ship would be appraised, um, it would be officially condemned by the court of vice admiralty, all the stuff on board would also be condemned, um, and it would be offered at auction to anyone who could, who could, um, uh, the, the ship itself and any of the, any of the goods on board would be auctioned off. Um, and Macaulay and Babington, uh, Macaulay's firm, uh, dominated every step of the process. So they were the most prominent merchants in Freetown. They had the most capital. Uh, they could buy and sell with, you know, relative ease, captured slave ships uh, and made quite a good business uh, buying and re buying, refurbishing and reselling captured slave ships to local merchants. Um, they acted as wholesalers. So they would sell, um, they would sell goods um, and food to Royal Navy ships that happened to be visiting the port after making a capture. They would sell goods and food to merchants. Um, they employed uh, most of the court vice admiralty courts officials. So it's uh, the, the various advocates and uh, marshals of the court were usually also employees of Macaulay and Babington. Uh, and so in a sense, the court and Macaulay's firm became so deeply interconnected with one another that I find it hard to think of them really as independent instruments. Um, mm -hmm. And Macaulay made a lot of money uh, from mm -hmm. from uh, the vice admiralty court and from his other business, uh, from, from, from his other trading concerns. Uh, but Sierra Leone, as he put it, right, he said, uh, Sierra Leone, that is our place. Uh, he, he wrote in, in a letter to, uh, I think to his nephew, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and in many ways for the duration of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, it, Sierra Leone was economically speaking, Zachary Macaulay's possession. Um, and so the mm -hmm. Vice Admiralty Court became this engine of economic activity and a center of political gravity within the colony. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, I, I mean, it's, 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 as you say, it's a center of commerce, but, um, what happens to these the, the, these so-called captured Africans? Right. So uh, it, it, it's interesting. What happens at first in the course of the Napoleonic Wars is very little, um, because there's no there's a lot more money to be made from you know from 1808 when Sierra Leone becomes a crown colony and when the Court of Vice Admiralty is embodied. Um, until you know the end of the Napoleonic Wars in, in 1815. Although, um, as we can maybe talk about in a few minutes, in Sierra Leone, the Napoleonic Wars didn't really end until 1817 because that's when um, the British government started to crack down on on wartime practices of search and seizure at sea. Uh, but 
enslaved people didn't really matter that much to the colony at first. Um, we don't really even have a clear sense of how many people were released from slave ships uh, at the time. I mean, we have a number, we, we have a clear sense of, of uh, how many people, there, there are incredible records um, at the National Archives in Kew um, that list the people captured on board slave ships in the period, but we have no sense of what happened to them. Um, so, for example, the, there was a colonial census taken in 1811. Um, and it doesn't include people outside of Freetown proper. Uh, and so the population of Freetown hasn't really grown significantly from when the, hadn't really grown significantly from when the last census had been taken. But of course, thousands and thousands of former slaves had arrived in the colony. Um, and it seems as though, for the most part, they were sent to live outside of the borders of Freetown proper. Um, some may have returned if they happened to be from places near the colony. Some may have returned home. Uh, some were set up in kind of nominal nominal uh, settlements. But for the most part, they were their value to the colony was limited. Um, so the first waves of people to arrive in from, let's say, from 1808, 1808, 1809, 1810, uh, were extremely valuable within Freetown proper because everyone in Freetown wanted domestic labor. Um, and so that those first groups of slave ships that arrived in, in, in Freetown uh, provided a source of cheap labor for colonists and merchants within the colony proper. Uh, but Freetown was a very small town, right? There were no more than, you know, fewer than 10,000 colonists uh, in, in, in 1810. Uh, significantly fewer. And so the the demand for local labor became what was satisfied fairly quickly. And then the question was, well, what do you do with these people? Uh, and the answer was, uh, I argue, kind of send them out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and it was only really after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, as, as we can talk about in a second, that um, the people who were known by the in the terms of the vice admiralty court as captured Negroes became significantly, became important to the colony. Um, what mattered was slave ships. Uh, so, you know, that those first generations of, of, of um, enslaved people freed from slave ships and repatriated in Sierra Leone, we don't know that much about them. Um, so for example, the, the African-American merchant, uh, Paul Cuff, uh, who visited Sierra Leone a couple of times uh, and who had schemes to kind of unite um, African American, free African Americans in the Northeast in the United States with colonists in Freetown, um, took a tour with a few prominent African American colonists in Sierra Leone, and he went outside of the city uh, to see some of the settlements uh, occupied by former slaves. But in Freetown proper, he doesn't mention meeting a single former slave, right? He doesn't mention meeting anyone who had been freed from a slave ship. So I have this sense of the colony at the time as sort of having satisfied its, its own need for servants, sending out everyone else. Um, and they only became important to the colony later. Hmm. So, so much of anti-slavery up to then really seems to be based on war. It really depends. It really seems to have depended on the context of war. So... What happens with the end of the Napoleonic Wars? How does so, how does anti-slavery change? Right. So 
one of the things that is really over, I mean, was overlooked for a long time, I think, in the history of, of British anti-slavery was the significance of um, two wars, I think, to the trajectory of British anti-slavery. And the first is the Haitian Revolution, mm -hmm. uh, which for some, which put a significant check, especially on Wilberforce. It, it terrorized Wilberforce, the idea of, of um, the sequel to the end of the slave trade or the end of slavery being the overthrow of British power in the Caribbean was something that Wilberforce couldn't countenance. Mm. Um, and so that put a significant check on parliamentary anti-slavery. And the other is the Napoleonic War, the revolution in Napoleonic Wars. Um, so the initial abolition of slavery in the revolutionary French empire put, uh, also checked British anti-slavery um, because one of the great tropes of, you know, the, the 1790s in, in British, in British history is the interplay between British liberty and what most Britons would have called French license. So Britons are free uh, and enjoy British liberty, but liberty is very structured. Um, it is deliberate. It's in many ways conservative, mm. whereas the French are, are, are licentious, right? They, they enjoy, they can do whatever they like, but they're so, their, their, their freedom is without any constraint. And so therefore it's basically valueless. It's just chaos or anarchy. Mm. Um, and so when the French abolish slavery in the revolutionary empire, that also puts the brakes on British anti-slavery, but Napoleon's re, uh, when, when Napoleon, in 1804, reestablishes slavery in the French Empire. That suddenly gives um, the abolitionists a new way of arguing for the merits of the end of the slave trade. Right? It, it becomes something that can be integrated into a patriotic war with France. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it's really easy to overlook. It's one of those things that that hides in plain sight. But the 1807 Slave Trade Act is wartime legislation. Mm. Um, it uses a wartime instrument of search and seizure to advance a war aim, right? Every, uh, which is the curbing French shipping um, and opposing France in every possible way on every possible front. Um, and so the end of the Napoleonic Wars really is a crisis for British anti-slavery. Um, and it's a crisis for Sierra Leone in particular. Um, so it becomes difficult after the end of the war with France to figure out exactly, you know, how Britain can continue to carry on its campaign against the slave trade. Because one of the things I point out in Freedom's Debtors is that a lot of the slave ships captured in Sierra Leone weren't, like the 1807 Slave Trade Act was supposed to apply only to British ships and to enemy ships, right? It was supposed to be, it made it illegal for Britons to trade in slaves and it made foreign belligerent slave ships into a lawful prize that British British ships could capture. Mm. But in Sierra Leone, most of the ships captured were Spanish and Portuguese owned. Um, and the Spanish and the Portuguese were, um, I mean, Portugal were, were Britain's allies in the war against France. So the campaign against the slave trade in Sierra Leone was carried out at the expense of Britain's allies. And after the end of, and in the course of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, the Portuguese monarchy only survived the Napoleonic Wars because of British aid. Uh, Spain was 
you know, it was it was a, a campaign of British forces and Spanish partisans that drove the French out of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, neither Spain nor Portugal was in a position to really complain about uh, British captures of its ships. Uh, but after 1815, that 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 changed, and all of a sudden, both Spain and Portugal a refused uh, to countenance the 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 uh, refused to give up their own slave trades. So after 1815. Um, Britain capitulated and allowed the slave trade to continue south of the line, so south of the equator, uh, legally, uh, under the Spanish and Portuguese flags. Um, and Spain and Portugal both wanted restitution for all of the slave ships that had been captured in the course of the Napoleonic Wars, particularly in Sierra Leone. Mm. So all of a sudden, um, Britain's erstwhile allies wanted payback. Uh, for what for what Britain had taken from them in the course of its campaign against the slave trade. And it was made very clear to Royal Navy ships that they could no longer pursue slave ships with the kind of impunity that they had done during the Napoleonic Wars. And in Sierra Leone, that was a crisis because the Vice Admiralty Court had become so central to the colony's economic survival that the end of the slave trade entailed you know, that the, the, the end of the campaign against the slave trade, as it had been carried out in wartime, um, meant the possibility of ruin for the colony uh, and, and the kind of end, end of, its, of its economic life. Um, and so it was a crisis. Uh, and the question in Sierra Leone became, well, what do we do now, now that slave ships are no longer valuable or as valuable as they had been? Uh, what do we do? How can we survive? How can this colony continue to survive? And and that's I suppose that's when sort of your your final chapter talks about the liberated right the, the liberated African department and how yeah. and, and that shift um, in uh, in the governance of Sierra Leone from slave ships to to the African communities the the, the liberated yeah. Africans. Um, yeah. So in in yeah, so the, the the kind of high point, it's it's worth sort of cycling back. So the kind of high point of the campaign against the slave trade in Sierra Leone, I argue, in the book, was right on the eve of the end of the Napoleonic Wars, when a governor named Charles Maxwell, um, who I think quite kind of shrewdly understood um, the sort of kind of gave a transparent account of the logic of the vice admiralty court when he started to um, not only attack slave ships at sea, but also use his own, um, the, the unit of soldiers that he controlled, the Royal African Corps, uh, which included both enslaved people, uh, formerly enslaved people and white convicts, and used them to attack um, slave forts on the coast of West Africa. Mm. Uh, and by doing that, they could claim the property of the forts through the vice admiralty court and also through the vice admiralty court claim uh, formerly enslaved people as soldiers for the Royal African Corps. So Maxwell understood, uh, saw anti-slavery as this kind of military, econo economic military perpetual motion machine that once he, he imagined that once he set it in motion, he could indefinitely continue to grow his own unit uh, the Royal African Corps, and also continued to seize more and more prize money for his own, uh, for his own and, and, and his officers in Richmond. Um, and Maxwell was actually the first governor of Sierra Leone to be sued by a slave trader, which is an important segue. Mm. Um, uh, he was sued 
in, uh, and I think the British government eventually settled for something like four, it was a significant settlement. I, I, I mean, I, I might be off by a factor of 10. It's either, I want to say 40,000 pounds, but that seems, anyway, uh, the British government eventually had to bail out Maxwell with a significant settlement paid mm. to an American citizen who was a slave trader, um, which is just goes to show that you couldn't, as a British governor in Sierra Leone, you could no longer seize slave ships the way you had done after after 1815. Mm. Uh, and so Governor Charles McCarthy, and the original title of the book, um, which I think to the editors at, at, at Yale's credit was McCarthy's Skull, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit obscure <laughs> um, uh, on, on the shelf. Although if you read the book, you can see that that McCarthy's beheading at the hands of the Ashanti, which maybe we can we can talk about at the end, mm. um, is is important, I think, symbolically for the history of the colonial history of Sierra Leone. Uh, but Charles McCarthy was a very very gifted uh, administrator. Um, it's not clear whether or not he was a particularly gifted soldier, because he had been born in France. So Charles McCarthy was named was born Charles Guerou. Uh, and spoke with a French accent, uh, had been raised in France as the descendant of Jacobites uh, who had joined the French army after uh, the, 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 the end of the Stuart monarchy in, in Britain. Um, and so McCarthy was very, very, I think had McCarthy not been a French Catholic, um, although he was a British subject, uh, he might have been risen to a, a significant administrative position within the British army because he was very good at organizing. Um, but he spent his entire career at a series of military backwaters. So he was uh, the organizer of recruiting in New Brunswick, which was not um, not a teeming metropolis in the <laughs> 1700s. Uh, and then he eventually ended up, he got his first significant command in, um, in Senegal and then in Gori on the coast of West Africa. So these were not places that were considered strategically deeply significant to the British government. Um, and McCarthy became governor of Sierra Leone in 1814 um, and had the perspicacity to understand that the end of the end of the Napoleonic Wars meant that Sierra Leone's colonial govern, structure of colonial government would have to change. Uh, and change quickly if the colony was going to continue to exist. Um, and so he took, as as the vice admiralty court waned in importance and was eventually replaced by courts called the courts of mixed commission, uh, which I think significantly were bilateral courts. So every court of mixed commission, they operated roughly the same in roughly the same way as the vice admiralty courts in the sense that captured slave ships would be brought to Freetown. They would be condemned by the court of mixed commission. Um, and then everything would be sold at auction uh, and the proceeds distributed. Uh, but where the vice admiralty court distributed most of the proceeds directly to British captains, the courts of mixed commission would reserve a portion uh, for the foreign government that was involved in the court. So a Portuguese ship, you know, Portugal would get half the, half the, mm-hmm. half the proceeds of the sale and the other half would have to be sent back to England to be distributed from Britain proper rather than in the colony itself. So the courts of mixed commission kept turning slave ships into money, but none of the money was going or very little of the money was going to Sierra Leone. Uh, and so McCarthy grasped that people freed from slave ships could replace slave ships themselves as the center of the colonial government. So he 
focused his energy on reforming what had been called the captured Negro department and which he in, I think sometime in 1820 or 1821 renamed the liberated African department in a kind of imperial rebranding. Mm. Um, so these weren't, these were no longer captured Negroes. They were no longer, um, they were no longer, uh, I guess you might say, enslaved people who were still property, but property without an owner. They were liberated Africans. Um, and in his hands, the liberated African department became a way of preserving the, preserving Sierra Leone as a functioning colony for, for, for a few more years. Um, yeah, so the, the Liberated African Department became the center, I argue, of, of the colonial government, replacing the Vice Admiralty Court. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, let's finally go back to um, Mokoli's skull. I mean, so you frame your book, you, you begin and you end with, uh, sorry, not Mokoli, Mokal, have I got it right? McCarthy. McCarthy, Too many, too many people with a yeah, surname. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, yeah. So um, what... What 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 is the the after story of McCarthy's skull? Because it, because it comes to have an important role in a, an important symbolic role in British imperial uh, culture. Yeah, I mean it's it's worth just quickly. I'll just quickly explain what the Liberated African Department did and how McCarthy came to be. Mm -hmm. How how it made in many ways it, it made McCarthy into uh, an important. Uh, it, it finally, I guess it finally scrubbed clean his, his French Catholicism and made him into um, a knight of the realm. Um, and so the Liberated, the Liberated African Department um, was organized. It had, I, I guess I, I would divide it into, it had a kind of religious mission um, and it had an economic mission. And its religious mission was to take former slaves, uh, liberated Africans, and turn them into uh, something as close as possible to, as, as, as closely resembling British English-speaking Christians as, as could be managed within the colonial government um, and constrained by all of the imagined limitations of, all, all of the limitations on um, cultural life that, Britons imagined were in, were sort of in, in, inhered in 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 Africans, uh, in West Africans. So McCarthy established a series of villages that were uh, not far from Freetown, but geographically remote from Freetown. So a lot of them were in the mountains above the city, uh, above the town. A lot of them were along the coast, um, sort of away. So Freetown sits on a a, a large natural harbor. Uh, but the liberated African villages were up and down the coasts to the north and south of Freetown and in the mountains. Um, and so as people arrived from slave ships, they were distributed. Um, sometimes it seems to me often, at least in this period, kind of arbitrarily to villages and the villages all had patriotic names. So Wilberforce and York um, and Regent um, and, and a number of others, uh, Waterloo and, um, and in the villages, they were subject to the, they were under the administration of missionaries um, appointed by the church missionary society, what became the church missionary society. Um, and uh, in the villages proper, effectively, 
McCarthy made a kind of bargain with the Church Missionary Society. If they would turn, uh, he would allow them access to liberated Africans as potential converts, provided they would also take on a lot of the responsibilities of administering the villages, which is, I think, uh, a stroke of, a stroke. it shows McCarthy's acumen as administrator that he was able to effectively recruit for very, very little money village administrators to run his colony for him uh, in exchange for the right to evangelize. Um, and so the, the liberated African villages were supposed to be places where former slaves would become Christians and would learn um, all of the, the virtues of British Christianity. Uh, although in practice, most of the missionaries were actually German Moravians, mm. which is another uh, wrinkle in the story. Um, and then the economic mission of the villages was that in addition to learning the virtues of British Christianity, uh, former slaves would also learn the virtues of of wage labor, uh, which circles back to the original purpose of the colony uh, and the original um, the original scheme of the Sierra Leone Company to have African Americans learn how to work, uh, learn. I put that in in, in inverted commas uh, to have African Americans work for wages and internalize somehow the not only the the idea of exchanging their labor for money, but also uh, to really want to exchange their labor for money and to want to uh, save their money and buy property and become British sort of British peasant bourgeois, a kind of British peasant bourgeoisie. And so in the liberated African villages, McCarthy had this vision of British Christians uh, making money, growing crops, buying land, and turning into a kind of yeomanry of Africa. Um, and in some sense, this, it, the, the Liberated African Department, I, I, the archives don't say much about the experiences of Liberated Africans mm. in this period. Um, so a lot of what I do in the book is speculate based on very sketchy evidence about what the experience, the lived experience of village life would have actually been like for, um, for formerly enslaved people um, and for, for local people who are suddenly interacting with, um, with liberated Africans from all across the coast of West Africa. Um, but what the liberated African villages are very good at is attracting publicity mm. in Britain um, and attracting goods and services and discounts and special um, sort of special pleading. They're, 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 they're an excellent way for McCarthy to make pleas for his colony in London uh, because they are, um, they seem to represent exactly what Britain wanted from former mm -hmm. slaves, right? The, the idea that former slaves would uh, continue to serve white overseers peacefully, um, non-violently, would not resist and would work to try to become more and more like Britons. Now, that's not actually what happened, but that's McCarthy was very good at making it seem like that's what was happening. Mm. Um, and so he became incredibly, uh, I mean, within the limited constraints of what was possible within West African colonial governance at the time, McCarthy became very successful. Uh, he was knighted. Uh, he became Sir Ch General, uh, General Sir Charles McCarthy, and eventually he became General Sir Charles McCarthy, Governor-in-Chief of Britain's West African possessions. So McCarthy 
lobbied for all of the other scattering of little little settlements and trading posts that Britain controlled or nominally controlled on the course of West Africa. And they were all folded under his governorship in Sierra mm. Leone. Uh, and eventually he was named in 18, I think it was 1822, although, I mean, I wrote the book, I should probably <laughs> know this, but um, he was, as Britain's, the, the, the Royal African Company, uh, which eventually then became the Company of Merchants Trading to Africa, uh, this old, venerable slave trading company uh, the, the began to collapse in the wake of the end of the abolition of the slave trade. And they had controlled a series of forts in what's now Ghana, uh, then the Gold Coast. And McCarthy became, was named governor of the Gold Coast, as well as, or rather the government of the Gold Coast was folded into the government of Sierra Leone. And all of a sudden McCarthy controlled, was nominally the governor of a uh, a coastline that was hundreds and hundreds of miles long um, and the series of tiny settlements along the coast. Uh, and then McCarthy personally traveled to, there was a, a dispute in the Gold Coast between uh, the kingdom of Ashanti, uh, which can, was the sort of by far the most powerful regional kingdom, um, a, a very significant power um, in, in West Africa. Uh, and the coastal uh, alliance between British traders and Fante villagers. Uh, and McCarthy journeyed to the Gold Coast and uh, believed that his success in Sierra Leone um, had made him invulnerable in, in, uh, in dealing with West African kingdoms. Um, and he pull Britain into a war with the Ashanti Empire, uh, the first Anglo-Ashanti War of, I think it was, I guess, 1823 to 1827, um, although I might be incorrect about that. Um, and McCarthy also opted to personally lead a detachment of troops, uh, and he was ambushed uh, on the Pra River, um, which eventually became the unofficial border between British territory and Ashanti territory. Uh, at the end of the Anglo-Ashanti War, um, his troops were ambushed by, by an Ashanti, a group of Ashanti soldiers. Um, and after uh, an entire night, sort of a, a, an entire night of, of gunfight, of gunfire, eventually the Ashanti forded the river um, and massacred the British Infante troops um, and beheaded McCarthy, allegedly. Um, well, no, they actually, not allegedly, they actually did behead McCarthy. Um, and so McCarthy's private secretary, who was taken as a hostage by the Ashanti and was, and was eventually ransomed, woke up the next morning after losing consciousness in, at the end of the battle, uh, he says, next to the headless corpse of Charles McCarthy. Mm. Um, and McCarthy's skull became this symbol of British gallantry and a kind of imagined West African, especially Ashanti savagery. Um, so it was believed that the skull was used as a trophy by the, by the Ashantahene, the king of, of, of Ashanti. Uh, it was believed that it was sort of worshipped as a trophy. Um, and it, the skull has this kind of strange mythical history. And no one really knows what actually happened to mm. the skull. Um, but McCarthy's skull became this symbol of the sacrifice that Britain had made and in the course of the 19th century continued to believe itself to be making on behalf of the project of civilizing West Africa.
Uh, right. Well, Patrick, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, as a last question, can I ask you what you're working on now? Yeah, um, sure. Uh, so the main, so as I, as I kind of hinted in the in, in the last question, I think that what we can take away from the colonial history of Sierra Leone is that it marks a moment where anti-slavery turned into the kind of great project of, of anti-slavery in the British Empire began to turn into a project of um, a civilizing mission uh, and a, a kind of new way of thinking about colonialism as a project of taking the lives of, of uh, imperial subjects and remaking their economic, political, um, religious, and cultural lives in a way that would slowly transform them into British subjects, right? So that that civilizing mission, I think, has its roots in British anti-slavery. And I think you can see mm -hmm. very clearly the connection between anti-slavery and the civilizing mission in Sierra Leone. Uh, and so right now I'm working on a project uh, that pushes these questions of emancipation and the civilizing mission forward into the 19th century um, and looks more specifically at the doing of emancipation in the West Indies. Um, so I'm working on a couple of articles about uh, the transition from slavery to freedom in the West Indies uh, in the 1820s and 1830s. And more broadly, I'm looking at the idea of emancipation as something that helped to organize the British Empire more broadly in the 19th century. Um, I think for a long time, historians have thought about uh, free, sort of the, the kind of early Victorian free trading British Empire, the Empire of Reform, the, the, the Great Reform Act, the end of the poor law as being something that was fundamentally a kind of domestic reform that then redounded on the empire. Uh, but I'm hoping to argue in my next project that in fact, emancipation and ideas about emancipation and ideas about freedom were brought to Britain from the Caribbean and from West Africa. They're, they're ideas from an Atlantic world where, um, to, to paraphrase Rebecca Scott, you know, the line between slavery and freedom is paper thin. Um, mm. and I think that, that that idea has deep roots and unacknowledged roots uh, in the history of Britain in you know, the first three decades of the 19th century. So what that project is going to look like, I'm not sure at this point in time, but that's really <laughs> what, what I've, what I've been digging away at. Well, that sounds like uh, quite an exciting and really needed and necessary project. Thank you so much for being on the show, Patrick. It was a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So take care.